we're, we're in Hebrews. We did an introduction two weeks ago, and again, if you're uh, the first time here and you haven't caught up with this, it's important that you probably go back on YouTube or podcast or the Leavener app or something and go back and listen to two weeks ago because we gave an introduction to Hebrews, and it's the context for the whole book. If you don't have that context and you read it out of context, it can really mess you up. It can mess you up. It messed me up for a long time. And so uh, go back and listen to that. Two weeks ago, last week, we covered like uh, the first four verses. Or was it, was it last week we did the introduction? I can't remember, but it was just last week, wasn't it? Yeah. So go back and listen to that and the, and the first four. But uh, here's the interesting thing is the author s- spends almost like two chapters here in Hebrews trying to convince the Christian believers, those that were Jewish, this is, a, this is important, those that were Jewish and came to know Jesus as the Messiah. Like, they have been looking for the Messiah all the way back to Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, and now Jesus has come as the Messiah. And the, the Pharisees and everybody are saying, no, he's not the Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. He was born in a manger. He can't be the Messiah. But there were Jews that actually did come to know Jesus as their Messiah. And he's now trying to convince these Jewish believers in Jesus that Jesus is more important than angels and Moses. They have Moses on a pedestal and Moses received the Ten Commandments, and they believe that God delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses through angels. And so now they've got angels on this pedestal as well, and they're even worshiping angels. And so he'll spend some time here trying to convince them of this situation and reminding them of everything that they've just learned. It's amazing how quick we can forget. How many, raise your hand if you remember the last time the Indianapolis Colts won the Super Bowl. Most everybody in the room can remember that experience. And you remember the next year when the New England Patriots had a perfect season and Eli Manning, right, beat them in the Super Bowl. It was beautiful. Uh, How many of you remember who was the MVP of the Super Bowl that the Colts won? I see four hands. Who was it? Peyton Manning. Uh, Who did they beat? The Bears. The Bears. Uh, what was the score? I've got two people giving me answers and nobody else can remember. They don't even remember. Who's, who's right? 1713 over here. Who were the two coaches? Dungy and Lovey Smith. Who scored first? Oh, you do remember that. Where was it? What was the weather? Okay, okay. That's pretty good. But you don't remember it all. You don't remember it all. And this is really what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people. You've forgotten what Paul has been teaching you. 
you came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and now all of a sudden you're forgetting. So let me remind you how important Jesus is. Ah, that's what I want to do every Sunday. Just remind you how important Jesus is. We pick up in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. He's actually quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting the Old Testament. And some of your Bibles that you have in front of you, it will be bold with a little asterisk or note beside it. And that means he's literally repeating what was said in the Old Testament somewhere. He says, you are my son, today I become your father. That's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He says, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. That came out of 2 Samuel seven fourteen. The scripture never refers to angels as God's offspring. Never in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament does it refer to him as offspring, yet it does here in these prophecies in Psalms in David's letter and in 2 Samuel. It says he's coming from the Father. Angels are created beings. There's no question about that, that God created angels. Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus created all things, right? So if he created the angels, he has to be greater than them. He has to be. He's the creator of angels. If Jesus created all things. In verse 6 it says, again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him, Psalms 97, 7. Now that word again will confuse theologians. If you sit there and read that, and it says, and again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, you automatically think about his birth in a manger. That's what you think about. But because it says again, some theologians believe that it may be talking about his return to earth. Again, when he brings his firstborn to the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. The firstborn is not about time, but it's about the position of who Jesus is. God's firstborn. And when he says, bring him into the world, he refers to this inhabited earth, not the universe that he's already a part of and that he created, but talking about him coming as human form here to this earth. Don't the angels already worship Jesus yet you've got angels on this pedestal above Jesus well not according to Paul or Peter they're learning about the finished work of Jesus by watching the church that's the angels they're they're literally watching you the church angels are watching you and they're learning from you <laughs> that's crazy They're watching us. Verse 7, it says, And about the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. He's quoting Psalm 104.4. It's obvious that the angels are now under the authority of Jesus. But let me remind you that Jesus is greater than the angels. He says, verse 8, But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. 
that's the this is the only place in scripture where Jesus is referred to as God. It's the only place. And it says his throne is forever. It's not changing, always was, is right now, always will be. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Well, angels were never anointed. They never were. But the Messiah was. Now, Lucifer was anointed in Ezekiel, but he was a cherub. He was a cherub. Angels were the lowest of the three, seraphim, cherub, and angels. The angels were the lowest. And they were all still created beings. Created by who? Jesus, the creator, God. If we love righteousness and hate sin, the fruit of the Spirit will be manifested in our lives and the anointing on us will be very clear to the world. That, Keith, that goes with what you're saying. If, I mean, we're all kind of odd ducks in that sense. Is that if, if we love righteousness and hate sin, it's probably going to be obvious to the rest of the world. And we'll be aliens to this world. We'll be foreigners to this world. People will see us different. Verse 10, it says, And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. You guys have those shirts that you just, your favorite shirts that you've always worn? I, I put one on this week, and, you know, when I took it off, I looked, and it started to have holes in the back. And I'm like, Doggone it, one of my favorite shirts is wearing out. And that's exactly, it's never going to wear out. He, he's saying this, God's never going to wear out, the earth will wear out. He says, you will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same and your years will never end. Jesus never changes. Always the same, is right now, always will be. Even even when things seem out of control. He never changes. Verse 13 says, Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Psalm 110, verse 1. Are they not all ministering spirits set out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? We know Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of God right now. Angels aren't doing that. Just Jesus. The writer is not demeaning angels at all, or even their calling here. He's just pointing out that Jesus is to be worshipped here and not the angels. Jesus is the most important thing. The angels were just messengers. Don't worship the messenger. Worship Jesus. And then he gets into chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, For this reason we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, 
so that we will not drift away. They have heard the new covenant and they're encouraged not to go back to the old covenant. I've got my former students here right now and I'm encouraging them to hear this mindset of the new covenant and don't take the old covenant and mix it with the new covenant. It's two totally different covenants. When the new covenant came along, it wiped out the old covenant. Hmm. That doesn't mean the Old Testament's not important. I did not say that. We're talking covenants here. There's a covenant that they had Jesus made when his blood was poured out. And we live in a state of forgiveness. And this is not about them losing their salvation when he says drift away. It's not. It has more with them walking in their own flesh and trying to do things on their own and trying to make themselves better by doing things. Verse 2, it says, For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The law, the law, capital L, Moses is doing its thing. If it's ignored, then judgment will come based upon natural consequences. Now watch this. I didn't say this. This is not me. This is the Bible. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says this. The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. You know what that says? (laughs) God gave us the Ten Commandments so we would sin more. I said that in church. God gave us the Ten Commandments so we would sin more. Like, sin was occurring before the Ten Commandments. Obviously, Adam and Eve and Cain killed Abel and things like that happened before the Ten Commandments. So God brings along the Ten Commandments and he puts them in front of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't lie. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but here, here's the thing. What did, what did the law do? It says the law came along to multiply the trespass. Literally, if, if, I say, if I say don't look at this light right now, don't look at this light, this is the law, don't look at this light, what are you doing? You're trying not to look at the light, but some of you have already looked at the light because I told you not to look at the light. If you see a sign that says wet paint, do not touch, what do you do? Otherwise, you would just walk right by the bench. If mom says, stay out of the cookie jar, what are you thinking about? Cookies. That's what the law does. So why, why would God bring along the law so that trespasses would increase? Because he's trying to help everybody see that they need a savior. That's why. It's that simple. Everybody needs a savior. So if 
you can recognize that you're a sinner and that you need a savior, hopefully you'll make the right choice, the right choice, and believe in Jesus. Just believe. Just believe. You think about that, the law came along to multiply the trespass, and 70 A.D. was coming. It was coming, hadn't occurred yet. Salvation is their only choice at this point. You go back to that verse, it says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's he talking about? It's like, how, how do we escape if we don't believe this? If, and he's saying this, is if, if you continue to do the old practice and going back to the temple, going back to the temple, you're not going to escape. You're not going to escape. If you go back and do sacrifices and everything else, well, what does that mean? Well, historically, 70 AD was coming and their salvation is their only choice. The emperor at the time was Nero. And the Gentiles were growing in number. And Nero burned Rome and he blamed the Christians. And the Jews then took control of Jerusalem in 64 AD, 64 to 66 AD. This is all history. This isn't like biblical. This is just history. But if you uh, neglect your salvation and you go back to the temple, guess what happened? The Romans came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And anybody that was participating in the temple died. 1.1 million Jews died as the temple was destroyed. And he says, the writer says, this salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Spoken by Jesus, but heard through others confirms that the author was not one of the original 11 or not Paul. We still don't know who the author is. But he heard this from those who were hanging out from Jesus. We know that he was a Jew because he understands the Jews and he's writing to the Jews. Verse 4, it says, At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his his will. Guess what? That's the church today. He's still doing that today. He's still doing miracles today. How in the world have we been in this building for 15 years and not paid a dime? That doesn't even make logical sense. That can only be God. I don't get it. God does. He says, For he is not subjected to angels the world to come, that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. Angels can approach the throne of God, but where man cannot at this point. I can in a spiritual sense, but not in a physical sense. The angels could, Jesus could not at that moment that he came to earth. 
It says, you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. When creation happened, God put Adam and Eve over everything. And they literally made their own choice. They gave up. They gave up being over everything. But someday, he's saying this, someday we will be subject over all things again, including angels. We will be. Verse 9, it says this, But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So Jesus became God-man. That's what happened. And he died for us. He experienced suffering to the greatest degree. He didn't put us through anything that he didn't go through himself. Oh, let me stop there for a second. But we do see Jesus made lower than angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. Jesus came here on earth in human form, in these physical bodies. Let me tell you, that physical body that Jesus had is just like yours. People go, oh, well... He's God. It's different. No, he came in a human body. Yes, he was God here on earth. And he had a body just like yours. He, he felt pain. He got sore. He got, maybe he got sick. I don't know. He had, let me say this. He had crazy thoughts. We know that because it says he went to 40 days into the desert and the evil one was like tempting him to do things and he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was, he was bleeding sweat. His blood was sweating out of him. It's because he's like, the, the evil one's telling him, don't go to the cross, don't go to the cross. And he's like, you know, but he's locked in. He's locked into the spirit the whole time. So he, he, here, here's the great news for you. My Messiah, your Messiah, my Savior, your Savior can sympathize with us. Physically. He's been there. He's done it. Even suffered death, which we have not done. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through their sufferings. The supreme sacrifice, that was appropriate. That was Jesus. Christ will present all things to the Father. And here's the good news, is we've already been brought to the glory through Jesus' life in us. The glory. I miss my friend Bob Warren. And he is the one that taught me about the glory of the Lord from the very beginning to where it is right now. 
And I thought it was appropriate that you might hear Bob this morning teach that for a second. Now you have to listen closely because you'll get distracted. I threw some pictures up there of Bob. But listen, his, his accent's a little weird. He's from Kentucky. He speaks fast. There's video games going. Oh. Thank you, Jesus. Let's play the video. For those of you who have spent any time around me at all, you've heard me talk about the glory. I think one of the neatest studies in all of Old Testament and New Testament Scripture is to follow the glory from cover to cover. Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch in case you've never looked at it. Consider this. You're going to tell me after hearing this that somebody wrote 66 books, glued them together, and we call it the Bible. And it just so happened to be this way. Listen to this. You don't commit intellectual suicide to believe in Jesus. Listen to this. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses in Midian sees a bush that's on fire, not consumed. He said, isn't that interesting? God's in the bush because God is so holy, so blameless, so perfect, that when he manifests himself, glory is manifested in the form of either fire or cloud. So God's in the bush. And God says to Mo, he says, Mo, go deliver my people. Mo says, I can't. God says, you're finally ready. So he goes and sends him to Pharaoh, and we all know the rest of the story. They come across the Red Sea, come to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai in the form of fire. And the people say, Moses, hey, Mo, don't you let that God ever speak to us again. You talk to us. And God said, okay, that's what you want. That's what you'll get. He gave them their desires and sent leanness to their souls. So what happens? Moses goes back up. He receives the instructions for the tabernacle in the wilderness. First, he receives instructions for the law in Exodus 19 through 24. In Exodus 25 through 40, the instructions for the tabernacle in the wilderness. And in Exodus 40, the tabernacle is built. And when the tabernacle is completed in Exodus 40, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, comes and lives in the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle. It lives during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Joshua leads them across the Jordan into the land of Canaan takes the land, then the judges, and then the kings. The first king, Saul. Second king, David. Third king, Solomon. Solomon builds King Solomon's temple. And in Second Chronicles 7, guess what happens? The same glory that's in the bush, that's on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, that's in the tabernacle, Exodus 40, enters into King Solomon's temple. Stays there till Ezekiel 9 through 11. And in 9 through 11 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel in Babylon sees the glory leave Jerusalem. It goes from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple to the eastern gate and back to heaven. And it stays there until Luke 2. And in Luke 2, the shepherds are biding in their fields, taking care of their flocks. And the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were terribly frightened. Why? Because the glory of God that hadn't been on the earth since 586 B.C. when Ezekiel saw it go back in Ezekiel 11... That glory is around those shepherds in Luke 2, and it absolutely scares them to death. That glory is Jesus. He was the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And Jesus Christ, the glory, was crucified, and we buried it, and it resurrected. In Acts 1, the glory went to heaven because a cloud received Jesus out of their sight. Cloud glory. Acts 2, fire comes upon the disciples and upon all believers. And tongues of fire descend upon them. And it represents the fact that God's glory would now live in all believers for the first time in the history of man. And Colossians 1.27, Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the glory, it's in the bush, it's on Mount Sinai, that's in the tabernacle, it's in King Solomon's temple. They went back to heaven. That came back in Luke 2. That went back to heaven in Acts 1. That descended in Acts 2. Now lives in me. 
based on Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, and that will preach. If you've never studied that, I challenge you to do so. It's one of the greatest studies you will ever do in Old and New Testament Scripture. I miss my brother. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We've, we've been sanctified. That gets confused with we're being sanctified. Both are scriptural. So, how can we're being sanctified and we're already sanctified past tense, ED, on the end of that? My behavior is being sanctified. The things that I choose to do, it's being sanctified. But what has already been sanctified? Me, my soul, and my spirit. Who I, who I really am? Not the things that I do, but who I really am has been sanctified, past tense. It's a done deal. The moment that I believe I was crucified with Christ on the cross. He took my old heart out and replaced it with a new heart. Took my old nature out, my old sinful nature out. I only have one nature. And that's the righteousness of God. That's who I am. Now granted I still sin. I still make bad choices. I get all that. That's my behavior that's being sanctified. But the more I know him and the more I understand what he's done, that he's already sanctified me, the less I want to sin. My behavior begins to line up with who I understand that I am. In verse 12 it says, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. That's Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. That's Isaiah eight seventeen through 18. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Satan uses the fear of death as a terrible weapon to literally gain control over the lives of people. We've experienced death in this room and it causes fear. Revelation 1.17 says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. We have nothing to fear. Yeah, I'm going to shed this earth suit someday. It's getting closer and closer. Kind of happy about it. Because I know there's greater things to come. There's no reason for me to fear. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Jesus didn't die for the angels. 
once the angels fell, made their own choices, they cannot be redeemed. Jesus came here to redeem man. Jesus is greater than the redeemed. Angels could not be redeemed. Jesus is greater than the angels. How many different ways can this author say this? Jesus had to be an offspring of Abraham. He came to redeem the Jews. Leviticus 25, 25 says, If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. It says to help Abraham's offspring. You're Abraham's offspring. Grafted in. Jesus is to be worshipped because of the new covenant being greater than the old covenant. Watch these last two verses. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become a male Jew because only male Jews could become priests. It's all set up in the book of Leviticus, if you would like to read that, and the 613 laws that go along with the Levitical priesthood. Go for it. Jesus wasn't always a priest. He became a priest at the time of the cross. Why was that? Because his blood was poured out. And the forgiveness of sins was attained. All that sacrificial stuff that happened in the temple, killing the the lambs, the goats, all the animals and their blood being poured out, it was for the covering of sin, the atonement of sin, which is totally different than the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, oh, watch this. The forgiveness of sins means it's gone. It's dealt with. It's over. Listen. He died 2,000 years before you were even born, and he dealt with your sin before you were even born. All of it. Past, present sin, and future sin. He died one time. One time he died. He took care of it all for everybody. I live in a state of forgiveness. I walk around forgiven. Yeah, I still blow it. He's like, come on. I made you holy. I made you righteous. He doesn't condemn me. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's like, just reminding me, constantly reminding me, you're holy, you're redeemed, you're forgiven. I died for you. It was the propitiation, that big theological word. It means to appease, to satisfy, or to pardon. This is what Jesus did for us. Jesus' death and his blood paid the price for our redemption. He did it. It's over. Doesn't get any better than that. In the last verse, chapter 2, he says, "Mm. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted just as we are tempted. 
that power of sin that Paul talks about that dwells in our flesh. I don't know if it dwelt in Jesus or on Jesus or whatever, but he had to deal with it too. The thoughts. He had to. Look, he never blew it. He was sinless. Always made the right choice because he was dependent upon his father to do it in him. Just as we have the ability to do the same thing. But the fact, the fact that he has gone through what I go through on a daily, a minute-to-minute basis brings me great comfort that my Savior understands what I'm going through. (laughs) Jesus had to deal with the whole thought issue just as I do. He, He knew what it was like to be despised and to be rejected, to be lied about and to be falsely accused. I get it. From what you've heard today, you can go out and say, oh, Rusty says we can go out and do whatever we want. Yeah, you can. I'll say that. Yeah, you can. You can do that. But I think if you realize what he's done, and he's done it for you, changes everything. Changes everything. My, My Savior, my God, he, he understands my suffering better than anyone. I guarantee it. Jesus, um, thank you for your life. Thank you for forgiveness. That uh, one, we live after the cross. And we uh, can just walk in perfection, holiness, redemption. That you love us that much. You did all that for us. May we, may we grasp that. May we understand that. Just as those believers there struggled with it. I know that we struggle with it. Just believing it and trusting it. May you do that in us. May you cause us to trust you today. What you have done for us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.